You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse here at 3RRR. How are you doing? Welcome, Bushy. Yeah, indeedy. Hey, um, welcome also to tonight's uh, return guest and also co-host, Ariane Wilkinson. Hello. Hello, Bushy. Hello, Jed. How you be? Really well. Fantastic to be here. Superb. Uh, I'm going to quickly introduce um, our two other guests this evening. Pete Smith, he is the manager of Series Fairwood. And also with us is uh, General Skills Collector and uh, Rouseabout, I think that's what we came to out in the green room, Raffi Cruz. Hello, Raffi. Hi, how are you? Very, very good. <laughs> we, uh, we have got you in this evening to discuss a bit of um, stuff about construction timber and the industry at large, and uh, we will bounce to you in a bit. But Ariane. So just a reminder of uh, Ariane. Uh, Ariane's an environmental lawyer who uh, works at Environmental Justice Australia, which is uh, a fantastic organisation. I keep banging on how they punch above their weight. They um, they do a lot of uh, um, significant litigation, I think is probably the way to put it. Um, and Ariane's particularly interested in uh, climate change and uh, everything to do with it. So um, Ariane was on a while ago. Mm. Um, and Last year and a bit. And a bit, yeah, to talk about Adani, which we thought pretty much was dead, but is it? What's happening with Adani or what's happening in your world, just to give people a quick I suppose update. Adani is a name that we've collectively started to throw at the uh, Galilee Basin. Yeah, that's right. It's certainly because, as as many listeners will know, it's the key mine that could be the keystone to opening the Galilee Basin mm. and it's the one that... Um, the company that's that's making the most noises about still wanting to go ahead. Yeah. Stop Adani has become synonymous with keep mm. coal in the ground in the Galilee Basin yeah. and there's been an extraordinary... Sorry, you just said something that I have to... You said they are like the key company that's make that's wanting to crack the ground there. I mean, yeah. is there other smaller players that are less obvious that are also sort of sniffing Pl- around the edges? Uh, no, plenty of uh, big players and certainly not around the edges. You've got Gina Reinhart, um, oh, yeah. some stuff owned by Clive Palmer, mm-hmm. a bunch of other big players, big players who've recently been mentioned by the our ex-Prime Minister's son uh, when he, he said, mm. not in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think it was, that people who've made questionable investments in the Galilee Basin are behind some of the uh, dumpster fire we've seen in, in Canberra with respect to Libsville. I mean... Wow, knock me was, over that with was, a feather. Yeah, <laughs> that was his kind of take on what um, got his, his uh, dad out of the PM roles. So, you know, there's some powerful players there, not just the Adani group, but 
uh, stopping the Adani mine is still well and truly a fight that's on the cards, still needs a lot of energy behind that campaign. Uh, they haven't got all of their approvals, so they can't crack the ground yet. Mm. They're still uh, going through processes at federal and I think state level to get approvals. Uh, one that they're trying to get at the moment is for a massive water pipeline uh, to pull a bunch of water out of a river. Uh. And a uh, bit of work I did recently was talking about the fact that the federal minister should be triggering a full assessment of that proposal. Mm. The Adani group have asked to have it kind of just a bit of a tick and flick, a bit of an easier approval under the federal environmental law. And if they get that tick and flick, they won't have their prior environmental history, their record of breaking the law in India taken mm. into account by the minister. So that's the kind of advocacy we've been doing, saying that that kind of information should be considered before you give them this licence to take all that water. Ah. It seemed as though... And so uh, you, when you were last on, you put us in touch with Tim Buckley and he was discussing the financial argument against uh, the project. Mm. Uh, but then it recent, well, relatively recently showed up that even though there were most banks, most financiers was, um, outside of, uh, you know, some pretty questionable sources, most people seemed unwilling to touch it. But then it started to emerge that Adani looked like they had their own startup capital from within. Do you know a bit about that? Yeah, I'm not across the actual detail of that, but I can quote, I think it's Tim who says, never underestimate a billionaire. <laughs> so, you, you know, you, well, we no. all think that there's economic rationalism in these decisions, but yeah. you also have a bunch of, of um, decision-making in businesses which is based on somebody who's got a lot behind it, mm. perhaps a lot of pride, who knows? And if you've got a big enough business and can sell off one particular asset, say mm. um, maybe I think they might have done some kind of um, sale on their Port of Abbott Point, which mm. they own, to raise the capital. And then when you're a multi, multi, when you're a billionaire that's got those kind of international connections, mm -hmm. you can look to your finance from anywhere. You've just got to find one backup. Yeah. So that's why, you know, there's an argument that those who are worried about climate change, we should never really take our eye off Adani yes. because uh, if you underestimate that billionaire, you just might end up with the, the carbon bomb that is the Galilee Basin mm. coal exploding on all of us if they crack ground and open it up. It does make sense, doesn't it? I guess if if you were sort of on Gumtree and you saw a sort of a rare guitar, you know, and you'd grab three or four friends and say, can you pitch in a few thousand bucks so we can get this thing? <laughs> so for him, I'm sure he mixes with slightly wealthier friends than you and I, Jed. Absolutely. So, yeah, cracking a few billion from and, some uh, buddies. And I think if we ever tracked the deals that, you know, all the uh, backs that got scratched, it would be just absolutely fascinating it would be you know one to the other to the other so mm, it would be indeed so it is interesting that the heat's sort of gone off it a little bit we've all sort of assumed that it was um just such a silly idea that it wasn't going to happen but um it sounds mm. like we need to keep our eye on it and yeah keep the pressure it on. seems like the last few years like because there's a few silly ideas in the last few years that we thought wouldn't happen like brexit and um the Donny, the Golden Merkin over there in <laughs> DC. So I guess if recent history has taught us one thing, <laughs> it's never assumed that a stupid idea will go away. Yeah, that's mm. absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, never underestimate the power of organised money and organised money within, mm. you know, the fossil fuel industry. So yeah. that's why it's really heartening to see the, um, the Stop Adani campaign taking 
Root and a lot of small local groups in all different areas of Australia mm. um, joining that and doing kind of peop, organize, getting organised people to fight that organised money. Yeah. And why it's good to see people like these guys we've got in the studio. You read my mind. It's the perfect segue. <laughs> I was just going to do it. Yeah, so well, having uh, touched a bit on the bad news, let's touch a bit on the good news. Pete Smith, uh, manager of series Fairwood and Raffi Cruz. Uh, well... It was interesting because I was sort of asking you how you'd like to be introduced off air, Raffi, and, and you do lots and lots and lots of things. So we're going to call you the General Skills Collector this evening, or the GSC. Um, so we're going to discuss Fairwood. Fairwood is a project that's run out of Ceres. Um, for those of you who are listening from interstate or overseas, Ceres, Pete, you can tell me what Ceres is because I always forget what it stands for. Oh, God, so do I. <laughs> Let's just... Okay, series. It's called series. That's cool. Um, it Maybe if one of us can Google that quickly. You are based out of series um, and you run the Fairwood organisation. Can you tell us, Pete, what is it? What is Fairwood? Fairwood's a new business uh, where we're, we're seeking to, to keep the transparency in timber sourcing. Um, so we're, we're selling to builders, we're selling to end users, um, trying to get in with architects and so on. Hmm. Um, we're sourcing timber from um, a few sources, but you know, farm farm forestry, which is um, one source, um, salvage timber, another source, where we can keep the story attached to the timber. Yep. Um, and say, all right, this is this is your timber. It's not from an anonymous uh, multi-stage supply chain. Yeah. It it's from this farm. It was milled by this person, and we know that, and mm. we can we can tell you that story. And it um, that's the that's the the short version, I suppose. Yeah. Well, we'll probably expand on the short version a bit as we go. But so, how did this come to start? Because um, Rafi, uh, one of the reasons that you're here is that you're an associate of uh, Peter or gosh, uh, Paul, 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 sorry, Hark, Paul Hark, uh, who's an architect, and he was a, a big push to for you guys to get Fairwood up and running. Do you know a bit about the history of, of that amalgamation there, Rafi? I, I, I do. Um, Paul's been an, an architect for, I won't say 100 years, but it's been a long time. He's 95, been 95, 96 about years. That. Yeah. He's been really, really um, interested and passionate about sourcing timber. He believes timber's a really, really terrific um, product to use in building, but it can also be the worst product you can use depending mm. on where it's sourced yeah um and also that it's appropriately specified so you've got the right durability you've got timber that's fit for purpose <clears throat> and um for the last i think 13 years or so he's been um also involved with um Mullum creek which is a environmentally sensitive residential development in donvale and um that comes with Attached, that comes with a set of guidelines. One of them is a timber requirement mm-hmm. um, that's got fairly stringent criteria to where, as to how you source your timber that you use in construction. Mm-hmm. So Paul's done a lot of research and, um, well, he also sells fajoas to Fair Food. Yeah, he does. <laughs> so it's the fajoa connection. It's the fajoa connection. So he was talking to um, to Chris, Chris Ennis, who runs... Yep. Former yeah. guest on the show. Former guest on the show, yeah. no doubt. Not available tonight, unfortunately. That's all right. He's got some stuff to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, it seemed to be a good series was a good fit um, because they have um, 
a really good reputation. Mm. It's a not-for-profit, it's a social enterprise, and so it he pushed. Yeah. I guess by association as well, um, for Fairwood to attach to series comes with um, an inherited good social capital that's built up over several decades now. It, um, it does, and there's a, yeah. there's a, it's a double-edged sword. We have, yeah. to, we have to live up to that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I was going to say, so the, the Fairwood title, that's um, sort of a breakaway or you know, a take on Fair Food. So Fair Food is a, a, a separate situation that's run out of series. That's right. Uh, what sort of... What, to st- get Fairwood up and running out of series, was there any sort of unique challenges that you guys faced or, or you know... Um, or, or challenges that you didn't face that Fair Food did. You know, what were some of those sort of startup stories? Uh, the big startup story at the moment is I need more space. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's a good story. Um, I'd say that um, one thing we're not facing that Fair Food might have is that the farmers that we're talking to who have grown trees over the last twenty-five or thirty years mm. are incredibly enthusiastic and incredibly. Um, keen on seeing what we're doing be successful. Yes. Um, because we're, we're trying to get timber that is difficult to get to market yep. out there and getting sold and, and getting used. Yeah. So, I mean, how was that different to the fair food where well, they, their farmers weren't enthusiastic to see that sort of succeed so much? or, or what? I, I, think it, I think it was more unknown at that time. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably making a little bit of an assumption. I wasn't there no, at that right. stage. But, um, yeah, there's uh, we have that capital that you mentioned. Yes. Um, and that's... There's someone, there's an organisation that's pre-existing that's vouching for you uh, in the public eye. Someone comes along and they see series yeah, attached. Yeah, I, ca- I can't imagine starting Fairwood by myself. Yeah. You know, I've, I've worked with Timber for... A long time on and off, mm. but still, you know, no way. Mm. And so, what, what what is your background in working with timber? Just quickly, I mean, it's uh, wow, or just medium. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started in cabinet making when I was sixteen. Yep. Um, I've done a, a whole heap of stuff. I'm a little bit similar to Raffi in terms of the gather skills as we go along. Yes, um, but you know, for that twenty 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 five years since then. Um, have always had a, a, a love of timber mm. and, um, you know, I suppose a, bit, a pretty, a pretty sizeable environmental conscience around that at the same time. Yeah. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> Ariane Wilkinson, co-host uh, and return guest this evening. Um, you've done some quick research... Uh, yes, research Because we were put my... on the spot. We didn't know what series <laughs> stood for. That's right. So series, one of the acronyms that it stands for Centre for Education and Research in Environmental Strategies. Nice, nice. Yeah, snappy name. <laughs> so <laughs> I... It. <laughs> yeah, it's a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had a question for you, Pete. I was really interested when you said there's farmers who've been growing wood for what you said nearly thirty years that are excited about fair wood because they they have trouble getting that wood to market. So that's the kind of problem that you know city slickers like myself are probably not really aware of. Is can you f- explain first why they have trouble getting that wood to market and whether fair wood is part of solving that problem or finding a market for them? We certainly hope we're part of solving the problem. 
Um, they have that trouble because they don't necessarily have the contacts, um, but also a single farmer with you know, three hectares of trees coming out over the next five years or something is doing a whole lot of other things with their life. They're not growing trees. They're not plantation managers. Um, they don't have enough trees there to interest the big milling companies. Um, they don't. They don't have um, the skills in doing that themselves necessarily. So you end up with these little stranded plantations, and there's you know there's a bunch of networks around the state and around the country um, talking about all right, we've grown these trees, we've done a really good job of it because tar- farmers tend to be quite good at growing things. What do we do now? Yeah. And that's that's a large part of the, the, the impetus for, for creating Fairwood um, where we can try and aggregate some of that timber, where we can develop the skills in talking to millers and processors and so on and the clients at the other end, architects and builders and people doing renovations and so on. And... Get that timber out into the out into the world. Fantastic, and pr- provide an extra income for those farmers who, Absolutely. as we know, with droughts, etc., most farmers are struggling in different areas. So that must be a real bonus to them to be able to sell that wood. It is, and you know, I was talking to a, a, a farmer with you know, a fair amount of trees um, a few weeks ago. A couple of years ago, he sold he sold timber into pulp, you know, to make paper. Hmm. And the price he got for those trees was near on criminal. Yeah. So we're we're trying to do something a little more equitable. And in doing that, hopefully, we then, you know, provide an incentive for farmers to do it again. Because you, you can have timber from from trees that are only 30 years old. It's quite marketable, quite useful and so on. But if you're only giving them $2 a tree or, you know, whatever, they're not going to replant them. They're going right. to take those trees out, get what they can, cut their losses, and and we end up with less trees in the environment so, in the landscape. So what, what sort of trees? Excuse my ignorance, but what sort of timber are we talking about? Uh, generally, uh, Australian eucalypts. Generally speaking, mm. um, some farmers have some exotics in. You know, you might be talking oak or something like that. Um, but generally, Australian eucalypts. Um, some of the acacias for furniture timber, like blackwood. Um, and then in, in terms of individual species, it, it's pretty damn broad. Mm. Uh, it, there's a lot of farmers out there who, who like to experiment, but then some others who have gone a, a more more uh, predictable, I suppose, route for them and a lot of blue gum or something like that in. But it, it's fairly diverse. Mm. And you'd be selling that mostly for furniture making or it uh, doesn't matter? <laughs> to, an, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. Um, where... We're trying to, to do the furniture side of thing at the moment. I've only been in this job for a few months, so got our first first bit of furniture timber landing shortly. Um, we're trying to do a bit bigger than that um, in in terms of larger volume of timber. So, uh, yeah, I've got flooring coming in shortly. Um, we're able to get more of that. Yeah, so it's, it's more for house building than furniture making, mm-hmm. but doing both. Well, that's cool. Um, 
one of the things that Fairwood has uh, in terms of the timber that it handles, it go, goes through the place, is a selection criteria. So if we could talk to the selection criteria a bit, and then I'd like to throw to Rafi, um, who's in the design process and, and working with Fairwood, about you know why um, in designing and delivering onto the client, that selection criteria is, is vital at, at, at their end as well. But if you can cover that, you know in your best way. <laughs> sure. Um, the, the, I kind of touched on it a minute ago mm. in a certain way. We, the selection criteria is, is about trying to incentivise good landscape management, good yes. environmental habits, good, you know, keeping trees in, in the environment. Mm. So we, we, we take in... The, the criteria deals with two sources, basically. There's the salvaged trees and so on. So, yes. you know... Tree blows over road in a storm. Mm-hmm. Do you want it? Yes, we're trying to take that timber that otherwise goes to waste. Yes. Um, that's fairly non-controversial, I suppose. Um, there are some nuances to that that get really controversial. But, yes. <laughs> um, Touch on those another time. Um, and then we're, we're trying to to make sure that someone selling us timber is, is then going to regrow the timber. Yeah. It is not... Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stories coming out of Queensland at the moment about land clearing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not taking, you know, we're not operating in Queensland, but no. we're not, we wouldn't be taking timber from from those sources where, yeah, there's some great timber coming out. Yes, it otherwise goes to waste, but we're putting money into a scene that you're not... Pu- comfort- you're funding vandalism. Essentially. Effectively. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the selection criteria speaks to a sort of a... a spoken or even unspoken code of ethics that align with what I guess what we've come to know series to represent. Yeah, and we're, we're trying to make it a spoken code of ethics. Yes. You, you can look up that selection criteria on our website yep. if you like. Okie dokie. And so, Rafi, from your perspective, where you're in the design process and working with Fairwood um, in projects, where, why does that selection criteria stand out to you the most? I mean, and, and what, in fact, draws you to be using timber uh, in that design process? Um, uh, one of the reasons that we are comfortable or, or that, that Fairwood is very attractive is that it has these stories attached to the farmer. So you know where the timbers come from. Timber's a really, really difficult thing to track. It's a really difficult thing to... I mean, there's all sorts of different certifications. There's AFS and PEFC and FSC and all these sorts of certifications. But especially overseas, um, they're... We, we question how well they're monitored, how well they're audited. Um, mm. So something that comes from Fairwood where you know there's a, there's a great level of trust that, you know, Pete has met the farmer. He will have met yes. the farmer. He'll have talked to the profile. He'll have talked to the miller. So there's a, there's a very, very transparent chain of custody from that tree to the decking. And that's or the like a shorter chain, supply chain as well. It's in, in shorter and it's it's verifiable of, mm. for us. It's, yeah. it's something that we know where it's come from and that's mm. really important. We're also, sorry, go on. Um, <laughs> I, I think the certification is a way to, to try and have that trust over a very long supply chain. Yeah. And if you have a much shorter supply chain where you can see through it more easily, the certification becomes less important or... Yeah. or we're finding it um, not counterproductive. It's fine if you have it, no arguments from me, but a, a farmer with five hectares of trees is not going to be certified. No. Um, and that, But we can see their supply chain. And so we, we're kind of we're doing that job instead of certification, I suppose. Yes. Okay, cool. 
Um, does that cover what you were about to say, Rafi? Yeah, the other thing I was going to say is um, for design in terms of architectural work or design work is it's really important to get timber that's fit for purpose so you want to know that the sugar gum you're getting is is durable so working with someone like Pete who really knows his timbers is really important because you're going to get timber products Mm. that are fit for purpose. Indeed. Um, So we should quickly touch on certification because um, Fairwood is, as you were just saying, you were just um, you're able to provide the background and the, the full story of the timber you supply, whereas um, I'll just step around this so we don't get sued. There's a lot of timber certification out there which can probably be bought and sold under a table fairly easily, whereby um, country of origin can be bent and twisted by a short truck ride over a border. There's all sorts of strange and unusual things that can go by should people as we've just discovered with honey with honey well that's right should i mean how much should consumers more broadly still have some faith in the certification process as far as you guys are seeing we we can see it make a difference Mm. um you know i can talk about timber that where we can see there's there's a non-certified source and there's a certified source within Mm. victoria yep and the non-certified is is not as good. Yep. And so it's got a place, mm. definitely. But blind trust is probably blind trust. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, and that's that's unfortunate because if we could trust it, we'd be we'd be in a good place. Yeah, I just think um, it's a really interesting discussion about certification because as a, as a lawyer I always think, oh, yeah, chuck more rules in, chuck more rules in. But when you give me the example of the farmer who's not going not gonna to bother with that to get that product to market, it's a good example of how small small kind of um, supply chains are so useful. My only comment is I'd buy it. Like if I had a piece of furniture, you know, I've been looking for a new bookshelf and if I knew it was from a local farmer... I think it's a great kind of um, marketing for locals. They'd be really into it. Mm. We're, we're banking on that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. We have got in the uh, studio this evening Pete from Fairwood over at Ceres and we have got Rafi, who is the GSC, General Skills Collector. Um, Ariane Wilkinson is co-host this evening and uh, you were going to throw to some questions on, um, on the selection criteria of Fairwood. Yeah, so really interested to hear what your selection criteria cover and how um, how you deal with the thorny question that we've got in, you know, Victoria and Tasmania of logging of old growth. Keeping in mind, I work at a, a law firm where we act for clients where we're often going to court litigating to stop logging in areas to protect threatened species, particularly old growth areas. So uh, do those kind of issues come into your selection criteria for fair wood, Pete? Absolutely they do. Um, and at this stage we're not taking any timber from native forests for want of a better term and the reason the primary reason for that is that the way the the industry works at the moment is that if you're if you're buying logs from that in that system you have no idea where they came from some could be from western victoria some could be from eastern victoria same species no way to tell 
my personal opinion, um, and I should state that this is a personal opinion, but my personal opinion is that a diverse, well-managed forest producing timber is the ultimately sustainable way to produce timber. There's some pretty good research around that saying that's not happening in parts, of, at least parts of Victoria at the moment, particularly eastern Victoria. Um, but I, honestly, I think we should be aiming for that. It, it's better than a monocultural bluegum plantation, a monocultural pine plantation, where they do support wildlife, but they don't support wildlife like a forest does. Mm. Um, they don't have the same ecosystem values that a forest does. Um, large parts of the rest of the world produce timber out of their forest resources, and we haven't cracked that nut in this country. And I don't have an answer to that, um, but I'd, I'd love to to see people working on getting one. Mm. Mm, question. Perhaps if uh, we could manage our forests better in southeastern Australia, our red gum, our, sorry, our uh, mountain ash forests might have a better chance. You and I were speaking before the show off air um, about the plight of mountain ash forests currently. Could you just touch on on that conversation to do with Lindenmeyer? Yeah, so th- there's there's a bit of research around at the moment, which looks to be pretty good quality. That is. Um, it's noting that mountain ash forests are in decline in terms of um, that particular ecosystem is likely to collapse and that is exacerbated by very hot, in, intense fires mm. that are infrequent. It's exacerbated by logging. Um, I think from hazy memory, exacerbated by climate change and so on. Yes. But even in the absence of all of those things, because we have pretty seriously departed from tens of thousands of years of practice in managing of those spaces. We There's some question as to, you know, they're not static environments. If no. we leave them alone, we don't end up with the same thing in 100 years that we have now just because we happen to have left it alone. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's another one of those things that I don't have an answer to, but I think that we need, we, you know, I'd love to see a nuanced conversation about that in, in the public space. Because at the, at the moment, the new, there doesn't seem to be any nuance. At the moment, the, we seem to treat forests in one of two ways, either knock it to the ground and burn what we don't take out or completely lock it up and freeze it. Um, maybe speak to the detriment of the latter because I guess for a lot of people listening, they might think that a, a forest that's locked up and protected from, you know, the touch of humans is better off for it, but that's not really the case, is it? Well, it depends what you mean by better off, I think. Well, okay. Well, I guess what you were saying, and, and I, I'm familiar with some of the literature on that, especially as a result of Bruce Pascoe and, and, and yeah, so forth, yeah. there's been in Australia, in fact, all over the world, humans' interactions with forests is many tens of thousands of years. But in Australia, we can say that southeastern Victoria is at least... 30-plus thousand years of interaction with a forest um, through um, regimes of light, gentle burns and so forth. So if we take the current situation whereby forests are locked up and everyone is locked out, we have huge increases in fuel, we have a whole bunch of things that go on year after year and when that fire does come through, such as we saw on Black Saturday and specifically in mountain ash areas around King Lake, we saw massive, almost, I don't think it's overstating to say almost thermonuclear uh, type heat affecting those mountain ash forests. Mountain ash um, uniquely have not evolved to take such heat. They, they take something, well, correct me if I'm wrong, it's about 40 years to mature to reproductive age. 
60? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a forester. <laughs> okay, 40 to 60. We can agree on 40 to 60. So you have a situation where a very slow to mature um, forest ecosystem, uh, which has never evolved to harsh levels of fire, is suddenly um, got a, a fuel load around its feet that has never, well, it's not had in tens of thousands of years and is, is prone to complete burning. So that's what I'm saying. If, if we lock if we have complete lockout of forest, it seems to me there's two things that don't happen. One is that there's no one present to see what's happening and report back, um, but also there's no one present to perhaps have a positive... Um, effect. I mean, I often say to people that humans are almost like the modern megafauna, you know. The, you know, we don't have those same large species and haven't for tens of thousands of years in most countries that are now living in a forest and affecting that forest and, and evolving with that forest. So... Yeah, and I think if if you looked at the, that mountain ash forest three hundred years ago, mm. it's not what we see today. No. Even even in the areas that have not been touched by uh, logging of Europeans or so forth, mm. it, it you know twenty thirty thousand years or or however long we're talking is long enough for that forest to evolve and behave differently with the interaction of humans. Mm. So. Yeah, the, the question comes up of what are we aiming at with with national parks? Do we do we want that ecosystem to evolve and evolve into a, a lower, scrubbier woodland, which is what the research that the Fenner School is is talking about happening, mm. or do we want something else? And I I I'm not advocating for a particular course of action there. No, no. Um, and like I say, we don't take timber out of that area because it is co- so contentious and because some of, some of the practices in there are so like far from anything we could yeah. kind of possibly want. But yeah. um, but there, there, is a, there is a nuanced discussion to be had for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to throw back to you, Rafi, um, because you know, I think in this, in this exchange of timbers at the moment, um, you're, you're in the design and, and consumer <laughs> end of the uh, transaction um, and consumers I would say are becoming increasingly savvy especially like you know we have food issues where a lot of people look at things like you know locally grown like they, they want to assess out food miles chemical use and sort of this um, in your position is does this compare well people's um, consumer savviness with looking for timbers and things is it starting to match up with the same attitude people have towards their food I wouldn't think so yet, no. no but but is there so. a slow crawl towards we it? We hope so, we yeah. hope so. Um, timber use and our hunger for timber in um, Australia is growing worldwide. It's growing enormously. And if we can't source our timber locally, we're getting it from South America, we're getting it from Southeast Asia and stuff. Mm. And it's really crapping in somebody's backyard, somebody else's backyard. We use the mm. timber here. We say we're going to lock up all our forests. We're not having it from here. So it's it that's part plays into the discussion you were having, Pete, about well managed forests, so that we can supply the timber that we need from. You know, we can we can sustainably source it locally. Mm. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot of timber's not. Tra- it's very <laughs> very hard to trace timber, so it's really yeah. hard for architects and builders to make informed decisions about where their timber's coming from. I think. Mm. Still, it does seem like something of a twin-edged sword. I was sort of thinking about this uh, during the day, and um, I think whenever you look at ethical purchasing and consumer issues, there, there seems to be an inherent sort of finger point. On the one hand, you'll have a supplier, and you, you know, you say, is the supplier responsible for creating a sound supply line, or is the consumer responsible for demanding one? Like, what? How do you think we get this right? 
Um, you know, the consumer. You know, if we're going to take that that capitalist kind of line, consumer mm. has to know to demand it. They have to have mm. enough knowledge to demand it. And yeah. Without that, it, you know, how could that happen? So this comes back to education. I Absolutely. mean, this has been the slow crawl for the last. Oh, I don't know how long, but I mean, with industrial farming and food systems, I feel like. A lot of people I know have been wary of this for a long, long time, but then suddenly the last 10 years you start to hear conversations around um, industrial farming, gut microbiome, all these sorts of things are suddenly starting to flood and maybe that's the internet and social media that's assisted that. Do you think social media has a capacity to start reinvigorating these nuanced talks about timber and the supply of timber into the building industry, Pete? Yeah, possibly. Mm. I hope so. Yeah. Um, And the... You know, Instagram's got a reputation for being for you know people taking selfies while pouting. But there's a, there's a there's a huge timber use community on there, and there's Heaps. a lot of talk about you know I, I'm doing this with this, and this is how it, mm. it's a massive scene, and there's a lot of you know peer to peer talking going on. Yeah, and I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I agree, Rafi. Yeah, look, that's one of the things that um uh, Mullum Creek. Is, is doing, we've got a website and there's free resources there that talks about timber. There's a lot of um, heads up for construction about timber selection and timber use and, you know, we're noticing in the last two or three years that the a, a massive amount of scantling timber, so framing timber is coming not from radiata pine in in you know near Kolak, but it's coming from Russia. It's coming from Poland. It's Baltic is that the pine. Baltic pine? Yeah, it's a Baltic pine. Yeah, mm. and we know we're finding a lot of traders, a lot of builders don't actually know the difference. They can't tell the difference between mm. a stick of Baltic and a stick of radiata pine. So, it is an education thing. It's a matter yes. of knowing what you're looking for and asking for the right thing. Mm. I feel like Merbu flooded Australia, you know, in the last two decades, and everyone jumped on it because it, you know, it looked okay. I used to say to people, you know, that's not tannins that are leaching out of it. It's the tears and blood of baby orangutans. <laughs> That's why mm. it's orange. That's why it's orange. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this is one of those sort of sad things where we have a lag time between, you know, the, this new thing comes in and everyone loses their mind for it, but then slowly but surely, you know, the cracks appear. Yeah. And we need to look into those cracks and see what's in them and so forth. My burning question is, I'm, I'm not across... Is anyone across why the transport prices don't make it more economical to buy local? Like, uh, you know, is it something to do with super cheap shipping? Like, it all probably comes on a ship, right? Mm. And I think it, it's to do with super cheap supply outside of Australia. Super cheap supply, yeah. Right, and super cheap labour. Yep. Yeah, so even with the shipping costs on top of that, even with, um, you know, probably increased costs of fuel, you're still getting a cheaper product compared to local stuff. Mm. Well, Baltic at the moment is about the same. <coughs> Sorry, about the same as um, Radiata, but that stuff's coming out of Russia. A lot of it's, um, well, certainly the labour and... How do I say that? Well, no, I can throw something under the truck for you there because I, one thing we... I mean, I had a lot of notes for this show and we didn't kind of get all the way through to the ramifications of the global illegal logging industry. But um, there's an article that I'll, I'll, I might post and I, I need to also thank Sarah Coles, um, one of the co-founders and, uh, and com, uh, host of this show, who has recently put an article together in Sanctuary, but she had a hell of a lot of research... Um, behind all this and uh the transnational crime <laughs> syndicates that surround logging actually quite harrowing i should um 
I'll double check with Colsey about her sources, but I might be able to put some details up there. But uh, there's a lot of bribes and there's a lot of um, paper bags um, and getting passed you, and under you tables. Have a look at those figures, and it's it's under ten percent of what we pay for timber. Yeah. So if you want to know why it's cheap. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.